The reading is Genesis 3, 20 to 24, and can be found on page 6 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back, and page numbers for those are on the screen. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come today to hear your word from all sorts of different places with our hearts in all sorts of different states. Help us, Father, with all the craziness and busyness of our lives to come together now to feed on your word, to learn more of you and to grow in our love of you. And we ask these things for the name of your Son. Amen. Today we come to the end of our series in Genesis. As we've looked at Genesis 1 to 3, we've looked at the foundations and the fractures of our world. We've seen the foundations, what it means for the world to have been made good, how we were made to be in relationship to God, to be made to be in harmony with each other as fellow images of God and to be made to work joyfully together in creation. But we've seen the fractures in that creation too, that the fall created, how it, how it cracked those physical, spiritual, and relational connections and left a mess. And in our passage today, we see that mess, those fractures, flow out further into humanity as the curse begins to take effect. By the end of our chapter today, the end of chapter 3, the fall will be complete. And the whole rest of the Bible, the whole rest of human history, will follow the consequences of that effect. And those consequences, well, they can be seen to be centered most of all around the great juxtaposition between death and life, between curse and hope that so clearly emerge in Genesis chapter 3. And so we'll look today at how our passage points to both those things. We'll look first at what is most obviously here in this passage, the outflowing of curse in the world and the introduction of death. And then after that, we'll look at the hope and the life that, that does still linger in this passage, as Pete said, even ever so faintly, before we see an even greater hope and greater life that our passage points to. But firstly then, curse and death. Last week, we saw how God has told Adam and Eve that making a living is going to be hard work. 
By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food, God promised. And in verse 23, it's made clear that that's what Adam has to do. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And so we see the curse take effect. The garden, with its trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food, well, they've gone, replaced with thorns and thistles and dust. But there is a greater punishment here too. Because banishment from the garden is banishment from something in particular. Look with me at verses 22 and verses 24 if you've got your Bible to hand. You see, in verse 22, God says they must leave the garden specifically, specifically, so that the man cannot take from the tree of life. And in verse 24, the great fearsome cherubim that Pete mentioned with his flaming sword, well, what does that specifically guard? It doesn't just guard the garden. It guards the tree of life. And so the rationale for removing Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden is to specifically prevent them from having access to the tree of life. And verse 22 is particularly interesting here. Because in verse 22, God says, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And some people, I think quite understandably, think that what God says here means that Adam and Eve had never actually yet eaten from the tree of life. That even the tree of life is somehow special and reserved, like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is. So that they're not supposed to eat from either of them. And that's why God says also. He's lumping the two trees together here. But I have to disagree with that. I think Adam and Eve, they have previously eaten from the tree of life. In fact, I think that eating from that tree is an essential part of the blessing of being in the garden with God in the first place. The also in question here, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree. Well, it's, it's only there in relation to the fact that they have now eaten from the forbidden tree. They have now eaten from the tree they weren't supposed to eat from. It, to put it another way, it's a bit like God saying, now that Adam has eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he can't also be allowed to continue eating from the tree of life because he can't keep being eternal anymore. And, and for me, I, I think that makes most sense of the context of Genesis 2. Because in Genesis 2, God says that Adam is free to eat from any tree in the garden, only excluding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in fact, prior to the fall, I think Adam and Eve were called to live forever, to have eternal life in relationship to God. And this seems to be so, well, because death itself, for humanity at least, only comes with the curse. If we think about it, think back to what God said when he told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And we know now from Genesis chapter 3 that that death isn't immediate. So what did God mean? He meant if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then in time, 
you will grow old and die. And if that's so, then there cannot have been death before, because otherwise God's not threatening them with anything. There is no punishment. They were going to grow old and die anyway. So to me, it only makes sense if being in the Garden of Eden, part of the inherent central blessing of that, as well as being with God, is to be with him in life eternal forever, to be and share in that tree of life. And so for Adam and Eve, exclusion from the garden is bound up with exclusion from the tree of life. It's a key part of the curse. No tree, no life. And when we think of our title for this series, Foundations and Fractures, well, we can see that this exclusion is one of the biggest fractures of all. The awful universal reality of death as the end state of every single human being, no matter how rich, no matter how important, no matter how clever, no matter how young and healthy we might feel now, no matter how much running we go and do, none of these things ultimately change the fact that we will die. And not just that we will die, but that those we know and love will die too. That awful, gut-wrenching pain of loss that we feel. All of this comes from loss of access to the tree of life. And at the end of Genesis 3, we are supposed to feel this loss in our heart and wish again for a time when humanity had access to that tree. But amidst the curse and the death, there is here a hint of life and hope. Because God had every right to end humanity in Genesis chapter 3, then and there, to shut the book. Because these people made in his image, who he had blessed with all the things that they had, they had utterly failed him. He has every right to extinguish them altogether. Yet he doesn't. He doesn't. That, that was never his plan. There is still life and hope for humanity. In fact, we see in our passage today, God is still remarkably full of tenderness and grace. In verse 21, before God casts Adam and Eve out, Eve out of the garden, he gives hope. He makes clothes for Adam and Eve and he puts them on them. Picture the loving parent getting their little child dressed, shoes on, ready to go outside. And, and I think, you know, the, the parent example is a good one. He may have punished them for their disobedience. He has to. He's a God of justice. It's what's right. But it doesn't mean he doesn't still love them. And as humans, I think we often struggle to kind of get our heads around the idea that God can have all these emotions at once. We're often so caught up in one or another, but, but think about a parent with their child. A parent might have to punish their child for being naughty. They may even get cross at them, like I did this morning. Confession time. But it doesn't mean that even in that moment we don't still love them, and that that love isn't still affecting how we're treating them, even as we're punishing them. And this is how God is. God is much more perfectly capable of being both just and loving at the same time. And we see this in how he treats Adam and Eve. 
And in verse 20, we see another glimmer of hope. In calling his wife Eve, which means life, Adam and Eve are naming and claiming the promise that God made all the way back in chapter 1, verse 28, if you can remember that far back, where he promised them, he told them that they would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They're naming and claiming that promise in Eve being named Eve, and they're saying, yes, we'll hold on to this. But now, of course, now that the fall has come, they won't live to see that day. And so they're claiming it in faith. They won't still be alive. Their sin means they will die. But they trust God's promise to fulfill that, that God will fill the earth with human life. But let's take stock now. Look back on our passage where we've got to. The curse has brought suffering and hardship and death. Adam and Eve have gone from the blessed eternal life of the garden to a world which is hard, stressful, and a life which is finite. And yet our passage also makes clear that it could have been so much worse. God in his mercy does not snuff out humanity. Human life will still fill the world. God still does care and love his image bearers. And yet, and yet, when we stand by the graveside, we can't help but ask the question, can this be it? All that promise, all that hope of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God's graciousness in breathing life into us, his love in sustaining us day by day, his love in giving us this creation that we live in, even with its fractures, all to end in the grave. God may, God may have clothed Eve. She may even become the mother of all living. But she still dies. And so does every single one of her children. What use is it at all? if we're still ultimately left without what we were made for, eternal life. Ultimately, at the end of Genesis chapter 3, our hearts are yearning for access again to the tree of life. But how? But how? And so as we leave chapter 3, with the flaming sword flicking back and forth. That is what we want to ask. That is what we ask. That's what our hearts yearn for. How do we get access again to the tree? And that question, that desire for the tree of life, well, it, it's a part of the very, very core, the very foundation of our human being. Where is eternal life to be found? A question asked by every generation in history. And Ezekiel, the prophet, well, he, he realized this question as well when he had his vision of the perfect future to come in Ezekiel chapter 47. When he, he saw in his vision fruit trees planted either side of water that flows from the throne of God. Though he doesn't expressly call them the tree of life, these trees echo the tree of life in their healing properties and in the overabundance of their fruit. 
And it's all part of his vision of the world that is healing, of the fractures that are being brought back together, a renewed and restored creation, at the heart of which is eternal life with God. Ezekiel sees the need for the return of that tree. And the good news for us is that there is such a tree. But it's not a tree with leaves and roots and branches. The tree is the cross. The tree is the cross. And Jesus is life-giving death on it for us. Have you ever thought about that before? Have you ever thought about the idea of the cross as the tree of life? The death of Jesus on the cross as a new and flourishing tree of life for us. Now I admit, in the modern English language, this seems a bit clunky. A cross and a tree are not the same thing, Jack, you might say. Come on, you're you're pushing the envelope here. But in ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek, The word tree didn't just mean the living organism. It also referred to the thing that the living organism is made of. What's a tree made of? Mostly. Wood, yes, thank you. Should have been in the thing before with Peach, shouldn't it? For example, in the book of Esther, when Haman decides to build a tree to hang Mordecai with, he's not planting a seed and waiting for a tree to grow. I'll get him in 20 years. No, he's building a wooden structure, a scaffold. That's what is called a tree. And in the New Testament, this language is used too. In the whole book of Acts, the Greek word for cross isn't used at all. But the word for tree is used to refer to the cross three times. And in Galatians 3 and 1 Peter 2, Jesus both becomes a curse for us and bears our sins in his body by being put on a tree. And so Jesus' death on the cross acts for those who believe in him as a new tree of life. This wasn't in the original plan, by the way. I just saw Pete use it, liked it. Here we go, it's back. Um, But how does it do that? How does Jesus' cross, how does Jesus' death on the cross act as a new tree of life? For us. Well, the Apostle Paul explains it for us in Galatians. He points out that Deuteronomy chapter 21 says that anyone left to hang on a tree is cursed. And Paul shows us that this even applies to Jesus on the cross. But Paul says, because Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life and hadn't ever done anything that actually deserved or was worthy of the curse, how then was he cursed? Well, he took our curse on himself. He took our sin and all the bad things we've done and he took them on himself on the cross. And so through that, through that taking of our sin, through his taking of our curse on himself, as he hung on that tree, eternal life returned to all of us who trust in him. The curse finally begins to reverse when we trust in him. 
In dying on the cross, Jesus' broken body begins to heal the fractures. It begins to heal those fractures that Adam's disobedience originally introduced into creation. The fruits of the tree of life, well, they flow out from the cross and, and restore all of us who believe we become the first fruits of that when we believe in him. But ultimately, they don't just transform us. Ultimately, when it comes to the final consummation, they will transform the whole of creation. And so, when we look down into that grave, when we contemplate our own mortality, if we trust in Jesus, we don't need to be afraid. All those, all those who trust in Jesus don't need to fear death because they have access to a tree of life. And we live now in the in-between. The healing of the fractures has not yet fully come to pass. Death is still a tragic and painful part of all of our lives. But, but when we trust in Jesus and in his death for us on the cross, we see the process of change begin in us. In our hearts and minds, we begin, we, the heels, the fractures begin to heal in us. We become less and less of the curse and more and more as we were meant to be. And though that won't be fully completed in this life, it will be fully completed at the consummation. And ultimately, that tree will bring us to that fully restored, consummated world. A world with no sin, no sorrow, no suffering. A good and perfect creation where there is life and healing and restoration from the tree in abundance. Revelation 22 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. And so we come to the end of our series on Genesis 1 to 3, looking at the end of Revelation. The great sweep of the Bible and human history from creation to consummation is here in Genesis 1 to 3. And perhaps as you reflect on this series, I think especially in light of what we see in the world around us, all the uncertainty and chaos, well, perhaps you'll be reassured of God's goodness and plan even in the mess. Maybe you may want to go home and thinking of all that God has done here and of the hope we have, you might want to write a prayer of thanks to God. Or maybe you'll just go outside and look into the park and be more thankful for the blessing, the good world that we have, even despite its fractures. Maybe now some things in the world, well, they make more sense to you in light of Genesis chapters 1 to 3, in light of the blessing and the curse. But you know, in light of this tree of life, in light of what Jesus has done on the cross, as spring begins and as we see the beautiful blossom as it flows out into the world and we see the leaves begin to bud and all the beautiful things and the daffodils and the crocuses, I just have one little request. Maybe next time you see a particularly beautiful tree, a tree that really you go, wow, that is, what a beautiful thing that is. Maybe you'll just say a little prayer of thanks to God 
for the even more beautiful tree, the tree of life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for Jesus. Father, we thank you for him, that he became the curse for us, that he took the curse for us, that on dying on the cross, he became a new and beautiful tree of life. Lord, help us to look to that tree and help us to look forward to the day with thankful hearts when we will be with that tree of life, with you and your son forever. Father, help us in the midst of chaos to be thankful. Help us in the midst of chaos to look to you. Help us in the midst of our busy lives with stress and all the anxiety and all of the things that we face to be able to remember that in Jesus we have the hope, a hope of life, because he is our life. And we thank you for this in his name. Amen.